You have a favorite TV show? Yeah, many of us do. A few years ago, one of the TV shows that uh, captured my attention was the British television series called Grand Designs. That show featured uh, unusual and often elaborate architectural home-building projects. Each of the homes featured was a one-of-a-kind building, often designed and managed by the homeowners who wanted their, to see their vision come to fruition. And you can see some examples there. Yeah, I know. It's, it was cool. Uh, now, as I was preparing this message on First Peter, I don't know if it was a squirrel moment, I don't think so, I was about in the past of that show and couldn't help that what, think that what Peter is talking about in the passage that we're going to look at today from 1 Peter chapter 2, he's talking about God's grand design for the church. So let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, and let's read it for, and see it for ourselves. Peter, almost right at the end of the uh, New Testament, if you hit Revelation, turn back, you'll find Jude, and then couple small letters of John, and then you'll get into the Peter. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone, Rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Who, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. May God bless the reading of his word. Well, the first three verses of chapter 2 follow up from what Peter said in the previous section. Remember, it starts with a therefore, and as I was always taught, when you see a therefore, you should look back to see it was, what it was there for. And when we look back to chapter 1, especially the last part, we see that uh, he was writing about those who have been born again by God's Spirit and how we are to live. And so in verses Chapter 1, verses 14 to 15, provides a helpful summary. Where he says, As obedient children, not prodigal sons and daughters, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, be holy in all that you do. 
Peter talks about how our selfish desires are to be replaced by what the Spirit of God desires in us. And in verse 22, he talks about like to obey the truth, have a sincere love for each other. And then in verse 23, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. You know, there's this thing when you do gardening that plants are supposed to be like the seeds that you plant. And this last year planted my garden and then there was this strange plant coming up. And I thought, hmm, should I pull it out? Maybe it's a weed. But I was, didn't quite look like anything, any other weed that I had seen. And so I thought I'll let it grow for a little while. And I grew and it watched that plant. And that ended up becoming a sunflower, the tallest plant in my garden. I didn't plant that seed. But someone or probably something in the neighborhood did. You see... I didn't think, oh, that pea plant sure grew up strange. And so it should be like the same. And Peter is saying, you know, you've been, had the Spirit of God plant in you that DNA of God. And you should be growing to become like God. That's the goal. And so this, he is talking about a grand desire to grow up. Now this involves, like gardening, weeding and feeding. The, the language Peter uses here is to get rid of, or some translation, put away, and it's a metaphor, and it's often that wording is used of taking off, putting away old clothing, okay? And in this case, it should be not just taken off, it should be discarded, you know, so that you have a new wardrobe of things that you're going to put on, appropriate behaviors for followers of God. But the ill-appropriate, what is it that we should be discarding, getting rid of? And he talks about things like malice. That is ill will rather than good will. It's relationally destructive. Deceit. Speaking and acting with ulterior motives rather than honesty and truth. Hypocrisy. Insincerity. That is... You know, having a pretense, there's, you know, you have conversations sometimes and uh, they're wanting something, right? It's, there's some hypocrisy or insincerity at work. Envy. How destructive is envy? You know, I was intrigued to find, to uh, look at, you know, where that's used elsewhere in the Bible. And the, the Christians were often victims of this. But it's clear that they were never to do that. But in looking in the Gospels, if we need an example of how destructive envy and slander can be, we need to no, look no further than the Gospels, where we are told that it was envy that motivated the religious leaders to hand Jesus over to be crucified. Envy. When that plant grew up, it resulted in the crucifixion of Christ. So Peter is saying, you've got to get rid of these things. These will end up destroying relationship, community, and all of the good things that God is growing. And yet Peter doesn't just send, give warnings, and, and he also stirs, wants us to stir in us a longing for God and for all that God has to give. So while often a, a vice list, you know, is often followed in the New Testament and in other literature by a virtues list, 
of what to put on, Galatians 5, for example. But instead of building on that, instead Peter builds on the image of rebirth that he talked about earlier at the end of chapter 21. And he shifts back again then to this image of a newborn nursing infant. Remember he had said that you have a new birth and you've been born again. And if you've ever observed, a healthy newborn craves its mother's milk and it will scream at the top of its lungs when it isn't getting it, right? Until that craving is fully satisfied. And Peter says, that's how you should be. Crave the pure spiritual milk, which is, that is the word of God. Earlier in chapter 1, verse 23, Peter had mentioned how the living and enduring word of God was the source of our new birth. Craving and consuming God's word is how we grow and mature in the faith. How we come to faith, how we grow and mature in the faith. In fact, it's interesting, so powerful was this metaphor and image and symbol of milk that we have records of the, in the early centuries when the new believers, new Christians would come to faith, they would be given a cup of milk with some honey in it. And they would drink that. And it's symbolic, of course. Uh, Psalm 119 says, How sweet your words are to me. They are sweeter than honey. You think about, they want you to have a taste in your mouth, right? Of what, how important this is. We are continually to soak ourselves in the teachings of Jesus and in the scriptures. The scriptures that Jesus himself craved, consumed, he embodied them throughout his life of ministry. So how can we think, oh, I read through the Bible once, I'm, I'm good. And that's not how Jesus did it. He memorized it, he savored it, he internalized it, he embodied it. And the goal of our spiritual growth, Peter says, is salvation. Now, you may wonder about future Often in the New Testament, believers are spoken of as having been saved in the past, right? Saved from the penalty of sin and from sin and death. And also, the New Testament writers speak of being saved in the present tense. Work out your salvation, Paul will say, with fear and trembling. And salvation, though, is also the ultimate goal of our spiritual journey full salvation. As commentator Ramsey Michaels notes, salvation is seen not as a last-minute rescue operation from the outside, but as the fitting consummation of a process already at work in and among Christian believers. The present age, therefore, has a dynamic quality for Christian believers. They are not seen as standing still while waiting for the new age to dawn, but is growing toward the realization of God's purpose for them as individuals, as community, and for the world in which we live. Do you ever have the kind of craving for God and for his word that Peter commends? I remember in Bible school, there was a verse in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 15, verse 16. Your word was found, and I did take and eat it, and it became to me the joy and the delight of my heart. And it was like, that's what was happening in me. I ended up taking courses so that I could go through the whole Bible in two years. It's just like this craving that God put in me. Maybe you once did have that craving, 
But is it long since past? Can it be reawakened? Remember a cartoon? There's always rights on cartoons, so I have to tell you the cartoon instead of show it to you. But it was a guy, he had, uh, he had some jumper cables. He had one each attached to each of his ears, and then the others he was hooking up to his Bible. <laughs> I think he was hoping for a reboot, you know, to get charged up. Well, I, I forgot that image. But Peter, he gives us an incentive that he says that will help us to stir that craving. And the key incentive that he gives that ought to rekindle this craving to grow up and pursue our salvation is that you have already tasted that the Lord is good. Do you remember when you experienced the Lord's goodness in a tangible way? Maybe his mercy, his comfort, strength, his love, his encouragement, his patience, his forgiveness, his provision, his protection, his affection, his rest, his joy. The list can go on. Nurture, Peter says, a grand desire to grow up personally and to be built up corporately. Which brings us to this grand desire also to be built up in verses 4 to 8. He shifts the imagery to that of a grand building. Now, many cities in our world are immediately identifiable by a famous building in them. Here's uh, some samples. See if you can pick up. What's that uh, one that's kind of leaning over there? You know, leaning Tower of Pisa, okay, in Italy. How about uh, the one on the other top one? Hey, that's, that's the Koreans got that one. Nasmin or Seoul Tower in Seoul, Korea. Uh, the bottom with the... Sydney Opera House on the one bottom, and the other one was Taj Mahal, right, in India, Agra, India. And how about that one in the middle? Right. See, you got this. You see that. It's recognizable, identifiable. And Peter invites his readers to envision the church as the grandest of all buildings, which must have seemed strange since the early church they had no grand cathedrals. They didn't even have what we call church buildings. They met in homes. They would have what we had, home groups. And so architecturally, they were invisible in their cities because they were living, he had said, as exiles, foreigners, and strangers. But Peter says the church is a very special feature, a living stone that is central and superior even to the grandest building Rome ever built. And this living stone, he says, is none other than Jesus Christ. And though he is rejected by many humans, he is chosen by God and precious to him. Indeed, he is the very cornerstone of the glorious temple God is building that surpasses any temple that has ever been built and ever will be. And this theme of of one rejected by human beings, but chosen by God and precious to him. That's an incredibly powerful theme. Um, another show that I've watched, Antiques Roadshow. 
One of the things in the antique roadshow, people bring, you know, their treasure, and sometimes they think, oh, this is something they've had for quite a while, and they find out it's really worthless, okay? It's not the real deal or something. And then sometimes, every once in a while, somebody got rid of this, or it was at a garage sale, you know, for a couple dollars, and they find out it's worth a lot. I heard recently one of the uh, books... uh, the original Harry Potter book, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone by J.K. Rowling. Uh, there was an interviewer, he had received a signed copy of the first edition, and he interviewed her, and he thought, this book is going nowhere, and he threw it out. <laughs> yeah, I know. Now it's worth uh, eighty to $100,000. Yeah, this is one of those kinds of things. Well, Peter is wanting you to have that <gasps> emotion of it, like they rejected what is infinitely valuable. And in verse 6, he establishes this theme, this theme of, you know, rejected by human beings, but chosen and precious by God. That theme was established long ago. You could read about it in the prophets, and he will quote Isaiah 28. And in the context there, God is establishing his kingdom. And there's this pattern at work. People have a habit of choosing a leader that God has rejected and rejecting the leader that God has chosen. If you remember in, in 1 Samuel uh, 16, when Saul, he had been a head taller than everybody else, and he was leading that nation. It was tanking. And then he wants to choose somebody. So God is saying, choose the one I say. And he goes through all of David's brothers, and he's like, is there anybody else? Well, yeah, there's the little guy. I'm the youngest in the family, so I know what that feels like. And, uh, but Samuel says, we're going to stand and wait until he gets here. And the one that everybody else rejected and looked over, he becomes the greatest king. There's this theme at work. The people have rejected God's chosen leader. And and Peter sees that what happened in Isaiah's day and, and in the history of Israel is mirrored in Peter. And for many of his contemporaries have rejected Jesus. But not everyone did. Not everyone does. And ironically, it's the very ones whose eyes and hearts have been opened to see and embrace God's precious cornerstone, he says, that you've come to, okay, that have also been rejected, marginalized, and ostracized by the world as exiles and foreigners and strangers. In the eyes of the world, not only Jesus, but they too now are considered rejects. But in you who come to him, the living stone, Peter says, you are like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house, a grand design to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God himself through Jesus Christ. Remember in chapter one, I don't know, did a message called, you're richer than you think, when he's going with them, all of the riches of this salvation. And I think now he would say, you know, you're grander, than you think. You really are. Because of whose you are and what God is doing in building you into his grand design. Now, you, to you who believe this stone, that is, Christ is precious. But Peter knew there were many who viewed Christ very differently. Those, he says, who do not believe. In their eyes, a belief in Jesus as Messiah was considered a liability. I'm going to show you in a moment a, a clip by, uh, by John Lennox. John Lennox, uh, he's actually a professor of mathematics, now emeritus, in, at Oxford, but he also has a, 
a doctor, uh, doctorate in philosophy and also in bioethics. This is quite a brilliant man and a follower of Jesus, but he has a story uh, from his university days that I think fits well, if you can play that. This brings me back to when I was 19. And one night I was at dinner, in college, beautiful dinner, like Nebuchadnezzar's banquet. And I found myself next to a Nobel Prize winner. Never met one before. Gosh, this is going to be interesting. I want to ask him lots of questions. I've always asked people lots of questions. So I tried, and in my perhaps cheeky way, I began to ask him about God, and he didn't like it. So being a kind young Irishman, I changed the topic. And I thought that was the finish of it. After the dinner, he said, Lennox, come to my room. Didn't sound good. <laughs> and I saw him inviting one or two other professors to his room. So he went to the room, sit down. They didn't sit down. Now he said, Lennox, do you want to make a career in science? Yes, sir. Well, in front of witnesses right now, give up this childish belief in God. It will cripple you intellectually. You'll never make it. You look worse than everybody else. And if you want to look as good as everybody else, you'll give it up right now. Hmm. Obviously, he didn't. It really challenged him. But why do some people consider belief in Jesus to be a terrible liability rather than a great blessing? It's an important and challenging question. Peter knew that his readers needed help addressing it. So in these verses, he tackles this problem. He unpacks and in more detail, the principle that he stated earlier in verse 4, that is, Jesus, the one rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. And he uses the Old Testament to demonstrate that this is an age-old problem, foreseen and foretold long ago. So don't be surprised by it. There's going to be mixed reactions. Indeed, what God was doing in the time of Isaiah is seen as the pattern of what he is doing now in Christ. God predicted all of this, Peter is saying. He knew how divided people would be in their response. But whose opinion of Christ seems most reasonable? The people who think they know it all, or the one who truly does know it all, from past, present, and future? And God's great affirmation of his son during his earthly ministry, remember at his baptism, the voice from heaven? Remember through his miracles? You know, if by the finger of God I do this, then you know the kingdom has come. Uh, when on the Mount of Transfiguration, the voice from heaven speaks again. This is my son, and this time it adds, listen to him. So God's great affirmation of his son during his earthly ministry, but especially, ultimately following Jesus' death. 
Peter will say as he did back in end of chapter 1, God raised him from the dead and glorified him so that they would know he is not the rejected one. He is the chosen and precious one. And there is solid historical evidence indeed. Yes, there are many unbelievers who see Jesus not as a cornerstone to build their lives on, but as a hindrance whose presence is a great annoyance. As one commentator put it, to those who refuse him, he is a constant anomaly, meeting them in unexpected places and challenging their indifference. For the truth is that though, although they are offended by Jesus, their attitude and persistent disobedience is an offense to God. Right? How could it not be? And so Peter is saying, they will be judged appropriately by God. Well, Peter comes finally to a grand status and purpose. Ours. In verses 9 and 10, he draws again from the well of the Old Testament. He draws from it often. Though it's not indicated as clearly in, this, in these verses as it is in the verses just preceding it, where in our English translations, you know, it gives us direct quotes. But roughly half of verse 9 is a direct quotation of Exodus chapter 19. Exodus 19, uh, Israelites have come out of Egypt in chapter 20. They're going to be given the Ten Commandments. God is going to enter into a covenant with them. Think of this as a marriage ceremony. And he is preparing them for this in Exodus chapter 19. And he's saying to Moses, this is what you're to tell the descendants of Israel. You yourselves, you saw what I did in, in Egypt. Just as Peter is saying, you've tasted that the Lord is good, right? Really, really good. Now if you fully obey me and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations of whom you were nobodies, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and holy nation. You know, they lived in Egypt. The only one who was really anybody was Pharaoh and his priestly class, and they were nobodies. And you know you're going to be priests, which you were all banned from. Now, Peter, he is underlined previously, as we saw, the preciousness of Christ. Now he underlines the preciousness of his followers, his living stones, he calls them. By applying to them, there's a series of honorific titles. There's four of them. These were originally given to Israel. Now Peter is saying they also apply to you. Let's look at them briefly. First, they are a chosen people. There's a clear link here with Jesus, the chose one chosen by God and precious to him. We have been chosen to belong to him, but also to serve him. You see, Israel was the ones that were supposed to be the servants of God. There's whole servant songs in Isaiah. But they didn't take that on that role. Instead, that role ended up falling to one faithful Israelite himself, Jesus, who took up that role. This is my servant. And now... Peter is saying, as you ones who, who are chosen people, you are also chosen to represent and to serve God. And second, he says, you are a royal priesthood. You're royal because you belong to the king himself. And as priests, they serve God. They have access to him. They are able to bring sacrifices to him on behalf of the people. 
In the Old Testament, the priesthood is limited to one tribe. Remember that? The Levites. But in the New Testament, it is given to all, everyone in the church, all the believers. Every Christian has access to the king himself through Jesus, through the sacrifice that he has done. And we are able to then intercede with God on behalf of others, which means we should be praying and interceding for others. God is, that is a great privilege that God has given us. Tremendous implications. And third, he says, Christians form a holy nation. We belong to God in a way set apart to him in a way that no other people are. And we are expected then to live lives dedicated to him. Be like God. When it says be holy, think also, Paul says, be imitators of God. You know, when I was a kid and I put my skates on, it didn't matter that I was like still, you know, about five years old. I was trying to be like Bobby Orr. I was wobbly on my butt, you know, but that vision in my mind, I wanted to be like Bobby Orr, even some little bit of it, you know? And that's what we want to be like God. As, as far as that gap may seem, that's the vision. And fourthly, Christians are God's special property, a people belonging to God, his treasured possession. That in the sense of belonging to him and him alone. Especially in, in Hebrew where this is quoting in, in Exodus 19, the segala, it's the king's special possession. Nobody else gets their hands on this, okay? And it's really precious to him. And Peter is picking up on that language. And it's like, you are the special possession, the king himself, and you are therefore the object of his special care. Which is ironic, since we were formerly nobodies. And so finally, Peter brings out the duty and service involved in this position and privilege. God has chosen his people, formerly nobodies, as he will say in verse 10, which is actually built on a quote from Hosea where God has said, he's basically divorced the people. They have been persistent rebellion. You are not my people. Because the statement at marriage was, you are mine. Now I am dispossessing you. You were once the dispossessed, the nobodies, but now he has made you his special possession. And what are you supposed to do to publicly praise God for what he has done? Calling you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Just as God called Israel out of Egypt, out of that darkness, and later out of Babylon, so now he has called people who were living in the darkness of ignorance and sin to be his people, to live in the light of his presence and his ways. And this should fill us with wonder and praise. What has God done for you that you could and should tell others about? That's your homework for this week, to think about that. I was thinking about from darkness, a place where you were in a place of darkness and God brought you into his light. And I was thinking when I was in the darkness of depression, it was so hard just to get out of bed in the morning. It felt like it took all the will and energy that I had. 
And I got out of bed. No, I didn't feel like that. No. Because God, God brought me out of that darkness and season of depression into having light and hope again. There's a whole story there, but, but that's a story that it can't be told without God's help and how God helped me through that. Our grand purpose as the people of God is to make him famous, to tell our own stories of, out of darkness into light of what God has done. And especially during Thanksgiving, we have the opportunity to do that. So don't leave here, yes, pun intended, <laughs> without getting a leaf from the table in the foyer area. And just in briefly there, you know, what was your story? Thank you, God, for bringing me out of the darkness of depression and giving me hope again. That's mine. What's yours? And, you know, in the providence of God, I bet you he's going to give you an opportunity just to share briefly that story. And if people want to know more, welcome it. This is the grand design that God has for his church, that he would become famous simply by us telling what he has done for us so that others would be encouraged to put their faith and hope and trust in him as well. I want to invite the worship team to come up. And as they're coming... Oh, yes. Thank you. Missed that. Communion. Rob, as he's coming, let's pray. Lord, I thank you. Especially, Lord, on this day as we will be celebrating communion. Lord, this is the grandest thing that you have ever done. And we are awed and amazed by grand buildings that we see. And I confess, I often forget, Lord, you are, I'm a part of a grand design that you are doing. And Lord, you, you want to be recognizable as we share the story of how it is that we became part of this grand design. Ordinary stones but ones who are living, ones who have a story to tell about how we were out of darkness into light. And I, Lord, I thank you for this opportunity. And I pray, Lord, that you would renew hope and give faith to some even this morning that they might taste and see for themselves that you are good indeed. Amen. Thank you, David. I'm Rob Clausen, one of the elders here, and I am very pleased to lead in communion this morning. Uh, would the people that I've asked to help come on forward? On the night he was betrayed, Jesus was gathered with the disciples to celebrate the Passover. And Passover is the remembrance of Israelite bondage in Egypt and how God brought about their release. The breaking and sharing of bread and the sharing of the cup that Jesus did with the disciples that night became what we now know as communion. And communion is a remembrance of human bondage to sin and how God bought our release. And we are called to remember. This weekend is one in which we are also specifically called to remember other things. 
As Ariel mentioned, yesterday was the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. And we remember and lament the treatment of the indigenous people of this land. And while we are learning the truth, we have a ways to go to reconcile with our neighbors, the people who lived on this land for thousands of years before the Europeans arrived. Last year, John and Jen Johnstone from our conference mission organization, Multiply, came to ERBF and helped us to see from the First Peoples' perspective the harms that were done, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally, but usually in arrogance. And reconciliation involves a willing act to be vulnerable. And this can't be authentic if it's done with any feeling that the other party is any better or any worse than I am. While we, were away, excuse me, while we were away last month, I read a quote in Rich Velotis's book, The Deeply Formed Life. So reconciliation is an ongoing spiritual process involving forgiveness, repentance, and justice that restores broken relationships and systems to reflect God's original intention for all creation to flourish. Reconciliation needs to be initiated by the party that is, that is in the position of or has benefited from power, and it can be costly. God reconciled us to himself, and it cost him, his son, part of himself. And that's why we can share in communion. The work of reconciliation is not that we despise ourselves or others, but that we listen and live humbly and incarnationally and through the process, see the image of God in one another. And during the time we're receiving the elements of communion, Ariel will be leading us in Jesus Paid It All while Elaine plays. And feel free to sing along or just listen as you are moved. I'd like to pray. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with, all, with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. That is God's grand design for us, right? That uh, he who called us out of darkness, that we might declare his praise. Just before we uh, go off into the week, just a reminder that uh, uh, we have someone from the prayer team. Susan is going to be on the prayer team and be available if you would like prayer. Like, just take advantage of it. And she'll be available here at the, at the front, at the right on your side, to pray with you. If you'd like to give towards the Elder Care Fund, uh, you can just designate that. Take an envelope, or there's envelopes at the back, and you can uh, write that on there. And that will go toward uh, the Elder Care Fund, helping emergency needs that come up from time to time to be able to support others in, in our church community and sometimes also in the outside community as well. You have a story to tell. 
And I want to encourage you to do that this week. Because God has called us out of darkness into his glorious light that we may declare his praise. Amen? Amen. Let's do that. Amen.